This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles once again and turn with me to Psalm 23 as we are, I was going to say quickly approaching the end of Psalm 23. I'm not sure that's an accurate state, uh, phrase. We haven't quickly come to the end of Psalm 23, but we're coming close to the end as we'll be looking at the first part of that last verse in Psalm 23, 6, and we'll get to that in just a moment. A few years ago, during a season of my life which seemed to be filled with unrelenting struggle, the Lord brought me to the little book of Ruth. It's a book that I had never paid much attention to before. I knew the story vaguely. I had read it many of times, but it's nothing I had spent much time thinking about. But for some reason, during this season of my life, the Lord brought me to this book. It began to resonate with me. And for months, I immersed myself in it, reading it over and over and over, deciding to preach through it so that personally, I could spend more time in it. And it is no exaggeration for me to say that the truths that God taught me in that book at that season saved my life. The book of Ruth is a love story. It doesn't have any rules in it. It doesn't have any commands, nothing that it tells us to do. It's just a story. It is an incredible story of love. It begins with a husband and wife. Elimelech as the husband, Naomi as the wife. It tells us very quickly in the first few verses that Elimelech, the husband, walks away from the Lord. He doesn't trust the Lord. And instead of trusting the Lord, he takes matters into his own hands and he leaves his home of Bethlehem and the protection of the people of God and moves far away to Moab. Now, as always happens in situations like this, when a husband or a father decides to walk away from the Lord, whether publicly or internally, all the family has to experience the consequences of that decision. And so it was. He packed up his two sons and he packed up his wife and they left, walked away from God and went to the foreign country of Moab. Every step to Moab, a step away from the Lord. Now, it doesn't take long for the consequences to become clear. Everything begins to unravel in Naomi and Elimelech's life. It tells us that Elimelech, the husband, dies. That leaves Naomi in a distant country, far away from friends and family and the community, which mattered so much in that culture and all the protection and the leadership and the provision of the community in a distant country, far from all of that protection as a single mom with two young boys, with no ability in that culture to provide for herself and no one looking out for her but there does seem to be a glimmer of hope. She has two sons and they begin to grow up. And as they grow up, there's the hope that they'll take care of their mom, that they'll provide for her, that they will give her that protection that she needs. And then they get married. The two sons marry two Moabite women. And then all of a sudden there's for Naomi the hope of grandkids, and that seems to change everything. So there's this feeling of new hope in the midst of a really devastating and sad circumstance. 
But then we learn that both of Naomi's sons die. This means Naomi is left again in a distant, far country, no provision, no protection, with two Moabite daughter-in-laws and no sense of what she's going to do. Naomi is in a bad place. As a matter of fact, it tells us that she decides to, to go back to Bethlehem, to go back home. But when she gets back home, she says to people, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. She knows, and we know this by the things that she says, she knows that God is sovereign, and she even knows in her mind that God is good. But because of her circumstances, she has become convinced that God is against her. She's convinced that because of her husband's decisions and all of the things that have happened in her life that God has turned away from her, that she is somehow under the judgment of God. And so even though she knows in her mind that God is good, she's also convinced that God is angry with her. Now, as she is making her way back to Bethlehem, to her home, she has these two daughter-in-laws with her. Now, remember, they're Moabites. They don't know anybody in Bethlehem. They're walking away from everything that they know, all of their friends and all of their family and their husbands have died. This is three widows making their way to Bethlehem. It makes sense for Naomi to go back there. It doesn't make much sense for these two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, to go back with her. So Naomi stops on the journey and she tells these two daughter-in-laws to go back home. In a real loving gesture, which is sacrifice for Naomi herself because now she's going back alone without anyone and actually going back into the shame of Bethlehem where everyone knew her husband walked away from the Lord. She pleads with them to just go home. And it makes sense for them to go home. Everything is there for them. They have nothing in Bethlehem. So Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, while weeping with Naomi, leaves. She goes back to Moab. It's the reasonable thing to do. It's the right thing to do. We don't judge her for doing what she did. That seems to be the right thing to do. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, refuses to go home. That's surprising. There is no reason that Ruth should stay with her mother-in-law, but she does. As a matter of fact, it says this. It says, Ruth clung to Naomi. That means that Ruth grabbed onto Naomi and said, I'm not going to let you go. The mental picture I get when I think about Ruth clinging to Naomi is the day in which I tried to drop my second daughter, Gracie, off at kindergarten, and she clung to my leg while multiple teachers tried to pull her away and take her to kindergarten. She was not going to let go of my leg. Everywhere I was going to walk, she was going to stay attached. That's the picture you get of Ruth clinging onto Naomi. And then Ruth says this to Naomi. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And the rest of the story, that's exactly what happens. 
She clings in every way to Naomi. When Naomi is bitter and lonely and hopeless and estranged and which everything about her future looks bleak and even when she's convinced that God is against her, Ruth just stays. And in Naomi's darkest moments, when all hope seems lost, she can never shake Ruth. And it's right there in Ruth's response to Naomi that the reason for the book of Ruth begins to emerge. That it is a love story. But it's not a love story about Naomi and Elimelech, and it's not a love story about Orpah, Ruth, and the sons that they married, and it's not even a love story of the way in which God provides a man named Boaz for Ruth at the end of the story. It's a love story about God's love for his people. The God has used Ruth and her circumstance to reveal to his people what his love for them looks like. It is a story that teaches us about what is called the hesed of God. Hesed is a Hebrew word. It's a word that you don't want to practice saying while we're in a pandemic and practicing social distancing because in the Hebrew, it would actually sound something like this, hesed. And when you say that, a lot of stuff comes out. The hesed love of God. It is a word that is one of the most important ideas and concepts in all of the Old Testament, but one that is often missed because it's so hard to translate. We don't have one word in the English language that adequately communicates the hesed, love of God. And so because of that, it's translated at different places. So you might see it all kinds of different ways in the Old Testament, but not know that it's the Hesed love of God because someday, sometimes it's translated as mercy. And sometimes it's translated as goodness. And sometimes it's translated as loyalty. And sometimes it's translated as kindness. The most common way in which it's translated in the scripture is the loving kindness of the Lord. And in so doing, it is trying to communicate that it's not just a love, it's a love that expresses itself in kindness. It is a kind love. And that does get a little bit more to the idea of the hesed love of God. It is a love, but it goes far beyond the idea of love that we might understand. It certainly goes beyond what we mean when we often say the word love. It is a word and a type of love that is rooted in commitment. It is based upon a promise. It's based upon a covenant. It is unbreakable. It is something that is true because it has been guaranteed and promised. It is rooted in commitment. It's a type of love that's expressed in sacrifice. It is a type of love that always costs something. It is generous, it is good, it is kind. It is always acting sacrificially for the benefit of others. It is a kind of love that says, you are more important than I am and I will regard you as that way. It is rooted in commitment, it's expressed in sacrifice and it flows from mercy. It's undeserved It's a kind of love that doesn't make sense. It's a kind of love that you can't earn. It's just given. 
It is a love rooted in commitment, expressed in sacrifice, and a love that flows from the mercy of God. And it is a kind of love that the Lord abounds with. In Exodus 34, six and seven, the Lord says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, listen, and abounding in steadfast love. That's the hesed love of God. Keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, our Lord is abounding in hesed love a love that is rooted in his commitment to us, a type of love that is expressed in sacrifice, a type of love that flows from mercy. It is undeserved. It doesn't make sense. You can't earn it. It's just given. My favorite definition of the Hesed love of God is one that you have heard me say many times if you have been with us over my last couple of years here. It is a definition of Hesed love I get from the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. There is an adult version of this book, which is the text without the kids' pictures called The Story of God's Love for You. But she says this, the Hesed love of God is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And Ruth embodies that kind of love. God who desperately wants us to understand that type of love sometimes just says it to us like he does in Exodus 34. And sometimes knowing the way in which we think and the way in which we come to understand things will tell us a love story in order to help us understand the depth of kind of love he has for us. And throughout the entire story of Ruth, Naomi is on this roller coaster of bitterness and struggle and resentment and confusion. And in every step of the way, Ruth is just there. Ruth says this, I've made a commitment to you and I will keep that commitment until you die. I'm gonna be buried where you were buried. There will never be a moment in which I'm not faithful to you. I am not going to let you go. Because the Hesed love of God, listen, is a love without an exit strategy. It's a love that doesn't let go. It's a love that clings to you until the day you die. Now, I'm not gonna tell you the rest of the story of Ruth. You're gonna have to go read the four chapters for yourself, but I am gonna spoil it for you. At the very end of the story, God, in an incredible uh, way, provides Ruth with a faithful, loyal man named Boaz. And they have a child, and his name is Obed. Now, the story could end right there, because it's an amazing picture of Naomi, who's lost so much, holding her grandchild, while all of the women in Bethlehem, who really judged her when she came back, because she had gone away from the Lord, now are looking at her as she holds this child, a picture of the Hesed, faithful love of God. But it doesn't end there. It ends by telling us a genealogy. The book of Ruth says that they have a child named Obed, And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. The one who wrote Psalm 23. Which means this, 
David, who wrote Psalm 23, came from a family line that was deeply rooted and grounded in the Hesed love of God. God had used David's great grandmother to be a picture of the Hesed love of God, of the unbreaking, unstoppable love of God to all of the people of God. It is David's great grandmother who is used as a picture of that love. God used David's great grandmother to show his people that you simply cannot shake the love of God, that it's gonna cling to you and always come after you until the day you die. And about 200 years later, David writes this phrase. Surely, goodness and mercy, the Hesed love of God, right there where it says mercy, surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and Hesed, surely goodness and the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, will follow me all the days of my life. Now let's think about that. He begins with the word surely, a statement of absolute conviction. This is a settled confidence. There is no doubt, there is no question in David's mind. He is absolutely certain what? That goodness and mercy. That word mercy is the Hesed love of God. And I really believe that the way this is to be read is this, surely the good Hesed of God will follow me all the days of my life. The good loving kindness of the Lord, the good, loyal, sacrificial, merciful love of God will follow me. Now, any commentator that you will read on this passage is gonna tell you this, that that word follow is way too tame. It doesn't mean follow. It means to come after. It means to pursue. It means to be right on the heels of someone and aggressively going after them. Think about this. That word follow is the word used to refer to what Pharaoh was doing when the people of God left Egypt, were standing at the Red Sea, and they turn and look behind them, and all of Pharaoh's army with all of his chariots and horsemen were coming after them. They were in hot pursuit. And if it wasn't for the miraculous work of God in parting the Red Sea, they would have come and take them and captured them. What David is saying is this, that's the way in which the love of God comes after you. It's pursuing you. It's coming after you. It is on your heels. It is going to overtake you. There is a never a time in which the love of God, the Hesed love of God, is not pursuing you. And it will do this, he says, all the days of my life. Just like Ruth says, may more than this happen to me. If anything but death parts us, so it is that David says that I am going to be pursued by the love of God until the day I die. It will cling to me and I will not be able to shake it. This verse in Psalm 23, six is the Old Testament equivalent of a very familiar verse, which we already saw on the screen this morning in Romans chapter eight, which says this, for I am sure, surely, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is Paul's way of saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It is David's way and Paul's way of simply saying this, you can't shake the love of God. And David is obsessed with this idea. This is deep in the heart of David. Over a third of the Psalms talk about the hesed love of God. A half of all of the usages of hesed in scripture are found in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 63, David says this, that the hesed love of God is better than life. In Psalm 89, he says this, I will sing of the hesed love of the Lord forever. In Psalm 90, he says this, Lord, you satisfy me in the morning with your hesed. I wake up in the morning, I think about the hesed of God. I think about his loving kindness and his mercy. I think about his unbreaking love for me. And first thing in the morning, it satisfies me. In Psalm 119, David says, the hesed comforts me and it gives me life that I find renewed energy and a deep sense of comfort when I meditate upon the hesed of God. And then in Psalm 136, 26 times as this constant refrain, David keeps repeating, the hesed of the Lord endures forever. The hesed of the Lord endures forever. Forever. Surely, the hesed of God will come after me. And you know why this matters so much to David? It's because David knows what it's like to walk the path of righteousness with the Lord. It is what he has described for us in Psalm 23. He knows what it's like to be led by the Lord in the path of righteousness. And he also knows that it is almost impossible to faithfully walk through the path of righteousness with the Lord without the confidence in the hesed of God. Without being absolutely certain that what is coming after you all the days of your life is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. As we've said over and over, Psalm 23 is a guide for how we walk with Jesus. Every verse but it's not only a guide, it's a realistic picture of what it looks like to walk with Jesus. One of the reasons I find this so helpful is because I think we often do a bad job of explaining to a new believer life with Jesus. Because what we fail to explain is that although we have become new creations in Jesus Christ, as we acknowledge our sinfulness and separation from God, and as we acknowledge that we exist and were created for communion with God, that once we trust Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins, then we do receive the new resurrection life of Jesus Christ, and we begin a journey back to life as it was meant to be. And we do begin to get a little taste of the joy and the peace that comes in the life we were created to live with Jesus Christ. But even in that, we still live in a broken world. That we live in a world in which pain and hurt and struggle and valleys of the shadow of death and souls that get weary and death still exist. And believers are not immune to the brokenness of the world around us. This is why we hope for heaven 
as we will talk about next week. Because there will be a time and we will experience the fullness of intimacy with God, but right now we get a taste of it, but we still live in a broken world. And in the midst of that brokenness, where discouragement still exists, where heartache still exists, where pain and suffering still exist, it is absolutely essential for you to have confidence in the fact that the love of God is following you every day of your life. And you can't shake it. It's clinging to you. This is why our mission statement at Prince is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. The reason we say trust and follow Jesus is because you are never faithfully follow unless you fully trust. That your ability to follow is dependent upon your trust. So the more you know of God and the more you immerse yourself in the word of God and the more that God fills you with his truth, the more you are able to follow him because as you fully trust, you can faithfully follow. And I would say, that at the very foundation of our ability to follow the Lord is the absolute confidence that as we follow him through the ups and downs on the path of righteousness through this broken world, we must always hold on to the absolute confidence that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Every once in a while, a church will discover a song that just seems to supernaturally resonate with them. I've seen this over and over in my ministry. In every church I've ever been, there have been different seasons in which different songs seem to be the song of the season. And it's not intentional. It's just in the sovereignty of God, there is a song we begin to sing and it just grabs a hold of the hearts of God's people. It is exactly what I've been hoping would happen in Psalm 23, that this would be the psalm for the season. One of those songs for us has been a song that simply says over and over, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. You see, that idea comes from Psalm 23, 6 that in the midst of everything going on in your life, you must know this, that the goodness of God, his loving kindness, his mercy is coming after you. It is on your heels, it is pursuing you. And no matter where you go and no matter what happens, you cannot shake the love of God. Church, rest in that simple fact. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.